there's nothing else in this world ever that will replace when you live and breathe inside a special operations team. There's nothing. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. 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 I could never not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Welcome to the third, and for now, final instalment in the story of H, as told to this podcast. I found this part of my chat with H particularly enlightening and moving. Well, H, as discussed in these podcasts we're recording today, we've only covered up to Afghanistan 2006 effectively, but you have deployments after that until you discharge at the end of 2013. So your service is ongoing and extensive. Due to the simple limitation of time, we're only going to get to the 2006 deployment today, but I know there's a lot more stories you have to tell, so we'll be getting you back on the podcast for more insight into your combat experience down the line. Yeah, that'd be great, Alex. I'd enjoy that. Looking back on the 2006 deployment, that's your first Middle East deployment, your first contact-heavy one, and that must have actually turned out more than you could have possibly hoped for going over there because you're not just going over there being exposed to these big contacts, but you're, for a good chunk of it, not even working with your fellow commandos. You're working with these other elite units with foreign forces and doing some absolutely crazy stuff. Yeah, when I left at the end of that, which was right at the end of the year, as in me being me, I tried to extend it until I really got told to get my ass home. I didn't need validation of self, but I guess validation of self. And when I say self, I'm encapsulating everything that embodies a special operations operator. I felt truly validated. I don't think I could have been tested any more or pushed any harder or further. We were going out almost every night. Some nights we do follow-on actions as a result of you know, intelligence we gleaned off that target. It would be assessed and analysed that we needed to work on that intel immediately. So as they call them, you, know, you do a follow-on. So yeah, after doing that for over six months, I felt very validated because you know, I knew what I'd done. The guys to the left and right of me knew what I'd done. And a small group inside our command, you know, from the commander Mark Smithhurst and a few other people, they, they were the only ones who really had a good understanding what I was actually doing. And more so and importantly, I was really, really eager to pass a lot of the lessons I'd learned and my experiences onto you know, key members and elements of the unit for their follow-on rotation so that we quickly adapted. Not that we were doing anything wrong, and we were certainly operating in a different space with different assets, but I thought there was a lot that I learned that could be passed on and immediately went about doing that or ensuring that as soon as I returned home. H, you have a number of deployments to the Middle East over the years. What I've had described to me before is that adjustment window from stepping off the plane back in Australia 
And for some people, it's for some lucky ones, it's maybe a week. For some, it's weeks, months, and I think some never truly adjust. How did you find that adjustment period returning home first in 2006? And how did that compare with your other return homes from Middle East deployments? Looking back, I'd have to say that was undoubtedly probably my hardest adjustment uh, other than discharge itself. Uh, there's a few reasons for that. It's because there was little known as to what I did. And it's not that people didn't know. It was when you come back, when you've been working with your force element, as in you deploy with a company, come back with the company, you know, you've got all those stories to share and everyone know, you know, everyone around, you know, you're talking about things all the time. Well, I couldn't do that. And there are some things I've never been able to talk about and probably never will talk about due to the sensitivity and the classification of them. That was difficult. But also the timeline. I had almost packed all my stuff other than my the gear that you wear and take on target. And in fact, I was halfway through my handover uh, with an SASR person in Bagram. And we used to carry pages and a uh, TST, a time-sensitive target page came up. And I was flying out in about, it was less than 12 hours and uh, a task came up and it was a particularly high profile individual that we'd been tracking. Anyway, the short story is, you know, I jumped on that mission, which had another whole, another set of complexities and issues on target and then flew back from that. And then from when I arrived back, I was in Bagram literally a couple of hours, which I finally finalised my packing, managed to get on the flight, flew out. And then I was only in our rear echelon area a couple of hours and then flew back. So the time from being on a target to landing in Australia was, was extremely minimal. Like, as in, I'd never experienced anything like before and I doubt others had because there's literally only a few hours in each location is how sort of fine I ended up cutting it. So, yeah, that transition coming back to your question was extremely difficult because of one minute you're doing this and then the next minute I'm literally wandering around the street. It's difficult to adjust. There's no doubt about it. I don't know how to put that into words. You're hypersensitive, as in you're very alert. Even smells. I could smell certain people. And I know it sounds silly, but you develop this uh, thing and that, then that would sort of raise your levels particularly high when, when you sense certain things around you or different things. You've been driving a certain way. You've been moving a certain way. Everything, you know, you went through every doorway. Wasn't lying awake of a nighttime having nightmares. You're lying awake of a nighttime because you can't sleep because you just can't. You're not used to relaxing. How did all this time away and even when you return home, the difficulty you have been at home impact on relationships with friends and family? With friends, I don't think it had uh, initially a negative impact. It was more, as in with other operators, it was more the fact that you're telling stories, but you had no one sort of to share them with. Normally where you'd share a story, you kind of wouldn't, but you were hearing all their stories from their trip, as in the company I was with initially. But with uh, family, it was noted straight away by family that there's a significant change in me. I'm not going to deny that. There was a significant change. Yeah, some of that was for the good, I was told, and other not so bad. And, you know, I went through a period of trying to adjust you, know, you might start excessively drinking and just doing things that you normally wouldn't do. Um, and that's, again, because, and I'm not justifying it, but you're trying, looking back and after speaking to several psychologists and that, you're trying to adjust. If you refer to a racing car, you know, if a racing car is made to race. It's not made to do anything else. You can't get a racing car and drive around in the traffic at nine to five. It doesn't do normal traffic. <laughs> we don't do normal traffic. You know, we're fine-tuned, we're tuned to do a specific, or, you know, to operate at a certain level. And when you're not operating at that level, there's an adjustment period. So you need to, you know, unpack and adjust that racing engine to the pace that you're now going at. And that doesn't happen overnight. 
How do you commandos support each other? I mean, there's a lot of strong personalities. There's alpha males and other personality types in there. Do you lean on each other or do you tend to go your own way when you're back home? Generally speaking, I'd say we lean on each other. To me, it's an indicator or a little bit alarmist when someone starts to go their own way, which I've seen and which I've done. That is not a good way to go. And generally that will lead you down a wrong path, a lonely path, a depressive path. We became very aware of all these issues as the uh, combat tempo of the unit over the years uh, increased and the severity or the intensity of that combat increased. You know, all you can do is keep a close eye on your mates back home. And as I became senior, you know, I've micromanaged a lot of soldiers. To the extent, you know, you'd be called at whatever time in the middle of the night and they might be upset or they might have an issue at home uh, and you'd go to their house at whatever time, wherever they were, to talk them through whatever they were um, going through. So the job behind the scenes, you know, really never stops. And the micro, as I call it, the micromanagement was necessary, very necessary, and that was probably the only way to successfully manage guys and that, um, you know, just gradually increased as the uh, operational tempo and the intensity of that combat within the operations increased. No sort of secret, you know, it's extremely sad that there's a lot of guys, too many guys, that have taken their own life, and there's a lot of other guys that have tried to and have been and still are, you know, in not in a good place. Um, so it's supporting those guys um, the best that we can, and there's, in the last several years, there's been lots of organisations that have raised up to that task as well, you know, to support veterans, you know, through that difficult period. There's a lot of, you know, unique support required to do that and to keep them on track and to keep them out of harm's way, whether that be self-harm or just destructive lifestyle patterns that you can get into when you're not well and you're not in a good headspace. It's quite sad. We're getting better at it as one as a community is across Australia. We had the government organisations, um, DVA and all the other non-government organisations and non-for-profit organisations are trying and I think are trying to do the right thing and are getting better at it, but we're still not there. There's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of things just, you know, they're not understood. When we start talking mental health, if I break my arm, run over it three or four times, set it on fire, that's quite a severe injury. But, you know, with skin grafts, with this surgeon, with that surgeon, with this specialist, with that specialist, you know, with scans, with this, we can fix that arm because we can see what we're dealing with. The, the problem that a lot of people don't understand or are so hard to understand with mental health, you can't see it, you know, so it's, it's very undefined. Well, that nebulous quality also helps propagate the stigma because a broken arm, we see a limb with a deficit. It needs attention to get back to what's accepted as the correct state of being, whereas the mind, like you say, we can't quite understand it or define it, and therefore there's less sympathy that's able to be extended sometimes because we don't truly understand or can't measure or quantify what change needs to be made. Yeah, it's, it's very, very complex. I mean, where was that mind at? Where is that mind now? And where should that mind be? So what is the healthiest state for that individual? How do you tell that? Yeah, how do you get it there? And all you can do is continue to go to specialists, you know, it's counselling, psychologists, psychiatrists, and try and get your mindset, your mental health back into a, into a healthy state. You know, we will never be, and quite frankly, I don't want to be normal. I look around and see you know, what others consider to be normal people. Well, frankly, that's not normal to me. 
So we'll always have a heightened level of alertness. We'll always be you know, anyone who's served and seen, been through, you know, what we've been through. You, we'll never, in fact, be normal. All we're trying to do with those individuals or do to ourselves is get us back to a closer to normal or what's considered normal state so that you can have some element of happiness in your life so that you can sleep well at night so that you're not hyper alert, you know, you're not catastrophizing, as I got told I was, catastrophizing things because you're for so many years you're trying to look for what can go wrong, what can happen, as we call it the most dangerous course of action. So we are always looking for, you know, what can destable us, what's going to affect us on this mission, who around us now could hurt us, how am I going to get out of here, how am I going to get in here, what if I can't, what's the contingency plan? Yeah, so this is going through your mind all day, every day. After Brett Wood, a very good mate of mine was killed, and uh, I became very good friends with his wife, Elvie. Anyway, we used to go to a cafe that they used to go to. When we'd walk in, he had a couple of places he liked to sit, and Elvie never ever said anything to me. And the first time we went to this cafe, without even thinking, I'm like, oh, hang on, we'll, we'll sit over here. And I sat in a certain position. She was a combination of laughing and crying. And I was like, oh, what's wrong? She's like, that's exactly what Brett does. When there's a group of us together, it's funny because someone will have to sit with their back towards that door or sit in an awkward position and you can tell that, you know, they're uncomfortable. So we sort of always have a joke about it. And because you like to sit in a certain spot, wherever you are, whatever restaurant, whatever cafe, whatever pub, bar, you know, it's just you don't even think about it. You just do it. So, you know, there's little things like that. It just becomes harder to relax. So H, when did you discharge and why? Well, basically, as soon as I got home from my last trip, so I did on my last tour, I did two back-to-back deployments, I guess you'd call them. That was through 13 into the start of 14. When I look back, it was it was a trip that you know I wanted and when it came up, pushed for. But you know, in retrospect, it was a trip I probably shouldn't have went on because you know, at that stage, I was in the red. And uh, you can only see that retrospectively. You can never see it at the time. And what I mean is I was that race car, but in the red now. I had an unfortunate incident overseas, like a disciplinary incident. And there are other, uh, as we call them, combat indicators that I was not operating at my prime. Combine that with I came home a couple of times, which were for funerals. One for Cam Baird's funeral and one for Hans Flea's funeral. So, yeah, once I got back from there, I was not in a good place. I've made some, uh, I've made some poor decisions, and one of them I made whilst I was overseas because of a few things that had happened to me that when I returned, I was going to immediately discharge, which I did. So basically from landing back in Australia, I put in leave, uh, and I really never worked another day. I had over 12 months leave in my book, which is an enormous amount and also an indicator of how busy I was and how much rest I didn't have or how much rest I needed because I hadn't had any leave. I'm not putting that on anybody. I hold myself solely and wholly responsible for all my actions. But I should have been rested and, you know, I think there would have been different life outcomes, different career outcomes that would have been different to what they are. But like I said, I'm responsible for that because my personality was to push, push and push. But, yeah, to finish answering your question, I come back and basically took most of 2014 off and my actual discharge was affected at the end of 2014. Do you have any regrets? <laughs> oh, I think I'd be lying if I said no. I have regrets, without a doubt, but they're mainly personal things that I'm not comfortable to go into. I will say I made some very, very poor decisions and I did some very, very poor actions at uh, probably one of the worst places or phases uh, in my life. And 
speaking of regret, for the rest of my life, every single day, I'll regret those decisions. I'll regret those actions. And that's something that you, know, you can't take back time. And that's something I struggle to deal with, but I have to deal with it. I don't need to agree or like what I've done, but I need to accept that it's done. And I need to navigate a way forward, you know, which again, to be honest, is what I'm still trying to go through now, resetting myself, I guess, and just coming back to a, um, to a better center line of, of grounding. Career-wise, I, no, I don't really have any regrets career-wise if I could you know, do it all again. You know, there might be some you know, small little things that I'd change or wouldn't do or whatever or, or advice from others I would listen to more so now. But my biggest regrets are uh, personal regret. Do you miss it? Oh, definitely. But I only miss a few components of it. I don't regret leaving. I think I left at the right time. I might not have left under the right my ideal circumstances or the ideal setting. But what I miss is I miss the camaraderie. I miss the brotherhood. I miss the esprit de corps. And I just miss being with the boys, as we say. There's nothing else in this world ever that will replace when you live and breathe inside a special operations team. There's nothing that even comes close to it. It's coming to terms with that and doing the actual job. You know, so when you are running at that full operational tempo, you know, you're deployed, what you're doing. You know, a lot of governance and a lot of administration things started to uh, creep in. And also as I became more senior, you know, you start doing less of what you want to do and more of what you don't want to do. I don't miss those things at all. But yeah, I'll always miss the job. But I'm also very happy of that I left when I left. We all want our war, so to speak. I was fortunate I got that and had many very good and unique deployments. So for them, I'm grateful. One part of myself is at rest, knowing that I have been fully tested on many, many occasions and you know, I stood the ground. So those things I'm comfortable with, like I said previously, I'm, I'm only uncomfortable with personal decisions I made and people that are hurt in you know, making poor decisions. You were thrice decorated for conspicuous service and valour and have a very senior record, as we've covered in this podcast. Yet, do you look back and feel that you made a difference? I truly believe I did. You know, I'm, I'm not arrogant about it. I'm humble and proud of what I did, what I achieved, and the people that I influenced along the years. The stamp, for want of a better term, that I left on the unit. You're working at such a tempo for such a long period of time, and it's a lifestyle. And you know, as I used to say to other guys when they were wavering, as in thinking about getting out or taking a step to the left or whatever, it's the job, you need to be 101% in it, well over your neck. And like I said, it's a lifestyle. And when you're not or you feel like you can't, then you need to move aside. There is absolutely zero scope for you to be anything other than 100% in it. And when an operator isn't 100% in it, you can see it. The other operators, you know, to his left and right, know it and then if you don't take action almost immediately then you know your reputation as an individual will start to dwindle and we don't experience that often because the nature of most of the guys you know do exactly that if they're starting to you know feel that way or whatever and that comes back to what i was talking about earlier the micromanagement you'd have an office call and you'd just talk through it all and i'd always try and help the guys out as in to achieve however way they wanted to exit or if they wanted to take a step left as in do another job or whatever if they were honest with me i'd always try and support them any way i could to achieve what they wanted to achieve and to get to some element of happiness you're behind the protected identity 
H, yet you have come on this podcast to share your story. Why did you choose to speak with me today? When we initially reached out and we started talking after following your podcast, I guess in short, I just thought I could contribute. And I thought what Life on the Line is doing is valuable to its listeners. I think there's a lot of stories out there that should be heard. I think there's a general misunderstanding across the uh, public of us types, you know, of who we are. We are human. We're just different humans. So I think, you know, it's good for people to hear the stories. It's not about me. It's about us as a community, that people hear some of the things that we've done and that I guess this podcast facilitates the sharing of that. And uh, I think that's commendable. As, as I've said to you before, you know, I think what you're doing is a great thing. And I think it's, again, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's about the public of Australia hearing the numerous and various stories over generations of you know, what some people and the diversity as well of what some people have done in their military careers. If we don't capture it, sadly, as you're all too aware, you've already recorded a few interviews and those persons have now passed and that's extremely sad. But we need to look at the positive of it that you were able to capture their story before they passed. And I think that's important because yeah, otherwise those stories would never be heard and it's important that they are heard. Thank you. Well, H, you've gone right back to your roots back to life on the farm. You've escaped to the country and you're as far away from the bustle of civilization as you can possibly be. What's your outlook on life today and what does the future hold? My outlook's changed very much so in the last year. You know, I had a high-profile international job that I won't go into the details of for almost two years. And at the time, I thought that was very good for me. It took me a little while to realise that it wasn't. And um, yeah, me being me, I just got myself too spun up again and too busy and too influenced by, by other things that I, that I shouldn't be influenced by, which you know, would lead me off track, so to speak. So coming back onto the land was something that I self-identified that I needed to do. I was not in a good place several months ago. Again, I'm man enough to admit that. And I realised that, that I was hurting myself, hurting uh, friends and family, and uh, it needed to stop. So you know, I'm sort of more of a man of extremes. So I decided to do a complete life reset, moved into a quite remote locality where I was back on the land where I come from. And slowly but surely I'm finding myself sort of reappear more of my own natural state and getting more comfortable again with life. I've still got a way to go, but I'm determined and focused on that to continue to work hard, stay away from the bad influences to make up for things I've done to people that I've hurt, friends and family, and to rebuild those relationships and to rebuild my life in more of a positive, simple, healthy, happy way that uh, hopefully in the next few years I'll be able to buy my own property. Once I have that, I intend to look at ways where I can give back to the veteran community and help out as people have helped me and as this lifestyle has helped reset me, I want to provide that to others. I'm a big, big believer that the city and the frequency of the city being the hustle and bustle, all the, um, you know, the static that's literally around you, it's not healthy for us, as in it's not conducive to grounding a soul. And uh, when you're on the land, you have limited distractions. You have a saying, you know, what matters out here is what matters. And if you think about that, what matters in the city is, or what you think matters is a thousand things every day, which really don't matter, but you start making them matter and it's just a distraction. So you need to clear everything off your deck, which I did, and focus on only what matters. And I found that to be quite rewarding. 
so yeah, hopefully in a few years I'll have my own place and intend to set up a couple of different business concepts I have on there to give back to the community and where I can help guys out in them transitioning or if they're in particular trouble in uh, regrounding and finding their center line. Every man deserves to be happy and healthy. And I think we deserve that. We don't deserve it more so than anybody else. It's maybe just harder for us to achieve it. So there needs to be a more concentrated effort on getting to that place. So, yeah, that, that's my focus for the future. Well, H, that sounds like a wonderful goal, and I wish you all the best for it. You mentioned the late Brett Wood, and in a way, that's how I first came to hear of you years ago when I was working on former commando Jamie Zimmerman's book, The Promise, about himself and Brett and the friendship and the legacy. And I'd heard of the legendary H first through working with Jamie. And the legends, of course, grown as I've spoken to other commandos over the years. So it's been great to finally speak with you directly and hear the stories from the man himself. Thank you, H, for sharing your story on Life on the Line. Thanks very much, Alex. It was an absolute pleasure to work with you, mate. I wish you all the best. I hope you enjoyed this three-part interview with H. I certainly did. Stay tuned for when to expect him back on the show. Find us online at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join the conversation on social media at LOTLpod on Twitter and at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We have more epic stories of Australian Special Forces to come out this season, along with amazing stories from servicemen and servicewomen in the Army, Navy and Air Force. Subscribe to get all content. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...